Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome back to Romaniacs, the podcast that's back from holiday to seize control and get things done. I'm Dorian Linsky, and joining me are a couple of our regulars. Naomi Smith is the CEO of Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi, how are you? Morning, the end of summer, Dorian, how are you? If that's the only thing you're mourning, then that's, well, uh, that's, that's good. The, late, the latest thing that I'm mourning. <laughs> um, so in the week that Sally Collier of Ofqual resigned, um, Gavin Williamson was nominated for an MP of the Year Award by the Patchwork Jesus Foundation. <laughs> Other nominees for the People's Choice Award include Jeremy Corbyn and Steve Baker. Do you know what this award is, and who are the people doing the choicing? Oh, I mean, look, just don't don't start me on this. The, the tone deafness of all of this is just unbearable. Um, so the award is run by a charity called Patchwork. Um, they're a charity that claims to want to strengthen our democracy. Uh, I really, uh, you know, I don't claim to know anything about their their other work at all. But um, this annual award having nominations for people like Gavin Williamson surely, you know, delegitimizes a lot of what else they do and stand for. And I had a quick look at their website that says their core beliefs include that young people have the potential to shape the present and define the future. Unless um, Gavin Williamson fucks up right, their exactly. future. Right, exactly. But then they can suggest that the grim reaper of your university <laughs> prospects, Gavin Williamson, and uh, let's all live in the past. People like um, Frank Mansoir are among the bastions of society who can help shape their prospects. So just get get in the sea, get in the sea. It's just a, it's a long list of boating with boat faces, isn't it? Indeed. Also with us is editor of politics.co.uk, Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian. Hey, man. So... Uh, this week's culture war fabrication was the the row over the BBC's uh, fictitious plan to drop Land of Hope and Glory and rule the oh, from the prompt. <laughs> now, James Kirk, obviously nonsense. James Kirkham and the Spectator suggests that the not this nonsense appeals to sort of Johnson's old hack mindset. Do you so do you think that having a former journalist as a PM means you get more of a clickbait government that you get more amplification that it moves from the mail, you know, actually to to number 10. Do you think that's part of the way that he thinks? It's a bit of it, right? Because he doesn't see the need to talk about any of the other things that have happened over the last two months. You know, you, I, haven't, I haven't heard anything from him on the A-level stuff or the face masks in schools or any of the other policy-orientated things. And yet, as soon as there's a fucking culture war issue, up he fucking pops, gibbering away about it. So obviously, it, it obviously it, it is it is a spectator article waiting to be written, right? So, you know, this is the kind of thing he would have been writing about feels comfortable with it. Um, but also there is a structural element to the way the government operates, where it is, on as part of its electoral strategy, targeting precisely this kind of values issue. So even if he was less journalistic about it, they would still be jumping at it. I, can't, I mean, this week, like looking at that debate was like, you know that meme of Dr. Manhattan when he goes to Mars and sort of go, you know, he's just like, I'm just so tired of these people and their little lives i think anyone now with even like one fucking brain cell and even like a trace element of integrity must feel that every time they see these debates come on like i'm so tired of these god-awful dimwit fucking ethical slobs with their dick measuring contests about patriotism that if i see them talk about it one more time i think i am going to have to go back to bed and never return (laughs) so if you had to invent a story about the left wanting to ban something what would you choose for maximum irritation. Oh, it's fucking, it's fish and chips, isn't it? Like, that's all that's left. I mean, we've done, so we've had Royal Britannia. We had 40 Towers over the summer. Fish and chips is all that's left. At some point, it will come towards the end of, like, the Brexit chats, right, where, they, where people really finally realise that those aren't British fish and actually they're from fucking Norway and Iceland. And once that happens, if there's any kind of entanglement there, if there's any kind of sense that they're banning British fish and chips which don't even fucking exist in the first place, they are going to lose their... It's got to be. It's, it's the fish and chips. Yeah. Maybe so we could do it as a kind of Cronenberg strategy 
to get rid of our political opponents. We would just do it with fish and chips, go for the culture war hard and just see if it makes their fucking brains explode. And then, you know, maybe we'll be all right. Maybe everything will be fine after that. Yeah, that over and done with. I mean, mm. just look, fish, it's all they ever care about, right? It's, it's always <laughs> about the bloody fish. Our guest this week is Minnie Rahman, writer, broadcaster and public affairs and campaigns manager at the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Welcome to Romaniacs, Minnie. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, you had a remarkable moment on the BBC this week talking about the death of Sudanese migrant Abdul Fattah Hamdallah. The anchor, Simon McCoy, asked you if there was personal responsibility involved. Now, I assume he doesn't believe that personally. But do you think there's something wrong with the discussion of the issue that this is even a kind of a sort of reasonable devil's advocate position when these stories are being covered? Yeah, I mean, that was an incredibly hard question. I, I was really shocked by it. Although I think if you watch the clip back, I, I seem pretty calm, but there was definitely a lot of internal screaming going on. Um, <laughs> so I think the worst thing is when I when I actually look back on that day, I did a number of interviews and I don't think that that was the hardest question that I actually got asked throughout the day. I had quite a few journalists like really try to dehumanise what had happened and sort of skip ahead three steps in the conversation and ask me how we should deport people faster and how we should um, introduce more detention rules and all sorts of things like that. And I think that really is a a direct result of of sort of many, many years of politicians and some of the media like dehumanising migrants, demonising them and trying to use them as a bit of a scapegoat for, for things like austerity and funding cuts and and actually not recognising what is actually happening to people on the ground and that that's a real tragedy. tragedy. Um, so, yeah, I think I think there really is a big problem that we're even forgetting that someone has, has died and that a young person has died and that they're trying to get to the UK and there isn't a way to do that safely. And we're just talking about the conversation. We're talking about it in a really in a really far removed way. It's not reflecting what's actually happening on the ground. So you, but you're basically in a position because it's, it's the idea of these sort of interviews. The style is like on the one hand this, and on the one hand the other. You're saying the sort of centre of this conversation is so far in one direction that that actually, when you're doing interviews about it, you just have to kind of. It takes quite a lot just to sort of drag back to things that should be, you know, the, where the centre really should be in this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Like the 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 narrative is is so focused on sort of border control and taking back control that that's where you're starting the conversation. You're not starting the conversation on oh, isn't it really sad that someone has died and how can we stop this from happening again? You're starting it as as oh, this person is inherently bad and a problem for the UK and we need to we need to find a way to make sure no one else can get in and when you're doing those interviews, it, it's often, you know, the, a battle just to get the idea out there in the first place that these are real people with wants and needs and, and family and friends and people who love them. We'll be looking at the refugee crisis with Minnie later and asking if at the end of a summer of scandals and U-turns, Boris Johnson is finding the job of governing just a bit too hard. But for all of that, a quick reminder of our next live Zoom for Patreon backers and everyone who's got a ticket for our live show at the Leicester Square Theatre, which had to be postponed for obvious reasons. The live Zoom is on Thursday, 24th of September at 8pm, so Patreon backers watch your inbox for how to register. You can join us for an evening of political conversation, political drinking games, trying to read the panel's political bookshelves, and questions from the presumably political audience. If you're not a Patreon backer yet and you'd like to join in, you can sign up for as little as £2 a month. Search Patreon Romaniacs to find out more. Also, we can announce a rescheduled date for the live show. It will take place on Friday, the 21st of January, 2021 at the Leicester Square Theatre. So, yes, there is a reason for us all to carry on. Firstly, is governing too hard for Boris Johnson and his pals? The government's efforts on Brexit, Covid, exam results and the reopening schools have left a lot to be desired. Now the PM is back from holiday and taking charge of schools, he says, in order to restore confidence. But does he actually inspire any? Do those at the top actually want to govern or just look like they're governing? Ian, what does it mean for Boris Johnson to say he's taking charge of getting kids back to school? I mean, shouldn't the Prime Minister generally be in charge? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just also, you don't get the sense that, you know, you did used to have a, an idea that the prime minister was probably um, sort of a couple of grades above the level of their secretaries of state in competence and in ability. 
Um, and you'd even have that, you know, with someone like Theresa May, or you'd even have it with someone like David Cameron. You know, these are not figures I admired very much, but you still saw that there was a distinction between them being away and them coming back. I mean, with Boris Johnson, you just don't. You're just like, well, what the fuck? I mean, they're all they're made in his image, right? They're all selected on the basis of loyalty rather than competence. So when he comes back, and it doesn't mean anything at all. The only political implication, I think, because there certainly isn't any kind of organizational implication. And there's nothing, there's nothing that would get, that would reassure you that things will be better off if he happens to be handling it himself. The political implication is he has to own it a little bit more. It's harder for him to distance himself from it. So now, I mean, given what's happened with A-levels, given the, the stuff around masks, given even if you go a bit further back, the promise that kids will go back to school before the summer break, which, which they failed on. I think now making sure that it works with kids going back to school at the start of the next term is this sort of quite, is growing into quite a totemic issue for the government. And the more attached to it he is, the more personal damage he takes from that not taking place. And we've barely seen him all summer. Do you think that this is a, a political decision to, you know, let others take the blame or, I don't know, share the wealth of government? Um, or do you do you think perhaps there is something to do with his his sort of recovery from COVID nineteen and that he he just wasn't um, he just wasn't up to it? No, it's I don't think it's either of those things. He's just fucking lazy. <laughs> no, this guy, he just doesn't want to be. He just he's not that interested, right? I mean, and this is and this goes back. You know, it's it, I think this start, it's it's like that thing with celebrity, like people wanting to be famous, right? Like, and that started, or people told me when I was a kid that it started for my generation. 90s you know and you'd say what is it you want to do when you when you grow up and they're like i want to be famous right or actually i asked that to my younger cousin at christmas and he was like i want to be an influencer which is like the updated version of that like i want to be a celebrity i want to be famous and it wasn't i want to you know be very successful at writing or at music or at acting and therefore be famous it was i want the bits that come with it rather than the content itself and that is basically what boris johnson is with governance like he just wants to do the governing, but he doesn't actually have any idea of what the fuck it is. He's, but you know, he doesn't have anything he wants to actually do in government. And again, that's not really something you can lay at the feet of any of the other prime ministers in my lifetime, apart from arguably, and this seems like a really unfair comparison, arguably Gordon Brown, who had just spent so long wanting to be prime minister under Tony Blair that he forgot why he wanted to do it by the time he arrived there. But for most of, he just, most of them wanted to do a thing and Boris Johnson doesn't really want to do a thing. He's not really interested in what a prime minister can do. He simply wants to be the prime minister. So, you know, here we are living in his fucking wheelhouse. One of our uh, listeners reminded us on Twitter this week that one of us on a show had said that he's just so much more in love with the idea of being prime minister than actually being the prime minister. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We, 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 we called it. We called it. <laughs> it's That's quite, the important It's thing. quite relatable. Sometimes it's more fun to be invited to a party than to actually go to the party. <laughs> <laughs> As an example of him not knowing what he wants to do, we had a U-turn on masks for school children this week, secondary school children. First, he was against them. Then Nicola Sturgeon said they'd be used in Scotland, which made Johnson say that he'd bring them in if medical advice changed. Medical advice did not change, but there was an outcry from teachers. So then he changed his mind and said, yes, masks. This is a man who famously wrote columns in favour of both leave and remain, and then chose leave at the last minute. Is there something uh, just sort of fundamentally indecisive? Because this does not look... You know, you'd think one thing you'd want to do as a prime minister is sort of project uh, strength and resolve. I mean, does he genuinely not know? I think it's slightly different, isn't it? It's that that there is two things. There's scientific guidance as far as we understand it, and it's always changing. You know, even even with face masks, it is legitimately changing. You know, an international level, etc. And then there's uh, the government's assessment of where public opinion is at, and the government's actions are based entirely on that latter category, and they do this. You know very well. They have extensive use of focus groups of, po- of internal polling. They're very, very in tune with where they think the public are, where they think the public are going to be. They're much less in tune with the scientific advice. Um, and you see that over and over. Like, I mean, it's not just like we're talking about the World Health Organization. We're talking about if you look at the reports that Gavin Williamson ignored on A-levels, you know, from six weeks, four weeks beforehand, he ignored those Commons Committee reports. He ignored the things that were told by experts to him directly. And yet, when you look in another area, you look at planning, for instance. The government plans on planning are taken almost entirely from policy exchange. I mean, they're almost copy and pasted from policy exchanges or papers. So essentially, they're not listening to guidance that, that presents problems, that doesn't play into exactly what they anyway want to do. So then things happen. 
we're looking at the guidance three weeks, four weeks, five weeks ahead of them having to do a U-turn. You can spot the, it's, it's almost like you're in fucking back to the future. You can, if you read any paper by a scientific body or a public health body, or even a think tank, you will be able to predict what the government's U-turns will be in about a month's time, because they will proceed to ignore that. People will then say you should act on it. They won't until they start seeing that public opinion on coronavirus is actually very reticent, is very concerned about stuff. And then they will flip when they've got proof of the public opinion change. So it's, exactly. not it's pragmatism. It's, it's pure pragmatism. And, it, and, and it's what the progressive left don't do so well. They will double down on an unpopular policy decision and, and try and you know, believe harder and, and sell it more. Whereas the Tories, unless it's a very, very mission critical thing like Brexit... They they are perfectly happy to U-turn and to and to take the hit for that because actually they don't see it as being a hit and they see it as a, you know a, a bold move and one that their base sort of thanks them for having a come to Jesus moment over. Um, it, it's pragmatism. It doesn't seem to be hurting them at all. Uh, so, Naomi, the Daily Mail practically dragged Johnson out of his Scottish tent and uh, <laughs> rammed him into the boot of a car and drove him back to London. Um, <laughs> Is this a sort of permanent declaration of hostilities or, or just a shot across the bows? What's the male playing at when it does turns on uh, Johnson like this? Uh, I mean, they have been slightly more critical uh, of the government recently, um, but I, I don't think it's got that much to do with wanting to hurt him. I, I think it's this sort of permanent performance of Johnson where, you know, he goes away for a bit and then he has to come back and sort everything out. You know, it, it's this charade. It's a front and act because that's what he's good at. And, um, you know, it, it's this tedious pattern they now have on repeat. Goes off for a bit. Ministers cock something up. He eventually comes back saying some guff like he's now personally taking charge uh, of the mess and all will be well because daddy's back. Um, and then the next stage is to then fire and sometimes quietly rehire a senior civil servant or, you know, they might bot an ab- 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 or they might abolish uh, a government agency or department altogether rather than sack the failing minister or signal any kind of mea culpa whatsoever. And I'm just so fucking bored of it. You know, the whole, I'll sort it out. If you want a job doing properly around here, you just have to do it for yourself. What, what, what? You know, guff out of the prime minister. And I I just think that that's what we've seen again this week with with, with all of this. I think a very apt choice of daddy there. Yeah. Applied to Johnson. Minnie, Justin Greening thinks the exams crisis is going to be Johnson's equivalent of Black Wednesday. It's sort of albatrosses around his neck for the rest of his term that people will be able to look back and go, oh, you know, his administration was was never the same after that. Do you think that it, it will have that kind of long term effect? Oh, God, I think it's really hard to tell whether that's right or not. I mean, I look back at the the last few months and, and there's been a whole clusterfuck of mistakes or U-turns and, and points at which you th- you would think that people step back and go, well, this is the moment. This is the moment when people can recognise that he's not acting in the best interest of the country or, you know, he's disappeared for a few weeks. That's got to be it. That's got to be the moment when his administration is is clearly failing. But it just, I just don't know whether that's happened yet. But what I do think is interesting about the the exams crisis is that that young people and students have had an incredibly loud voice in, in the political space, increasingly so in the last few years. And they're incredibly well informed. A lot of them weren't able to vote in the last election and have been impacted by this fiasco and I don't think that they will forget that when it comes to the next election and I really don't think that their parents and their family members will forget it either and so even though young people aren't necessarily the Tories target market if you like I think that will come back to bite them in the next time there's an election, you know, that's, you know, a similar thing happened to Nick Clegg and the Lib Dems over tuition fees. And I think students and young people have a lot more power than than the Conservatives are currently recognising. So I think that it, it will be a, a real turning point and will have a direct impact on the next election. And Labour are in one of the recent opinion polls, only two points behind the Conservatives. The right wing press, like we said, are not huge fans of Johnson at the moment. So do you think that the scaremongering over refugees was, was a bit of red meat to throw to the base? Like, did the, did the timing of it uh, seem largely political? 
Yeah, I think a couple of things are actually happening. So I think uh, we just have to recognise that that every year during August, during city season, people like Nigel Farage like to to turn their attention to the channel. You know, the weather is good, there's more crossings, the the news cycle is slow, and it's sort of any excuse for for Brexiteers and and right-wingers to talk about EU failures and borders and how scary migrants are. And what I think actually happens is that they draw the government into this game of of cat and mouse, where the government doesn't necessarily want to talk about the channel, but ends up having to do it anyway, so they, they don't lose that voter base that's that way inclined. But then I think they also take advantage of the predictable nature of that conversation and what they do is they sort of egg it up or rally it up so that they can look like they're taking a really strong principled approach when everything is sort of falling apart behind them you know it's it's manipulative misdirection I think you know they they know the conversation is going to happen they know that they're failing at this point in time on a on a huge number of issues there's a pandemic going on so why not use that situation to their advantage and and try and look like they're doing something whilst also scapegoating migrants at the same time Ian, uh, Johnson's goal was to get Brexit done. That was why he was uh, elected. Um, God, uh, even hearing it now, I'm still getting fucking like horrible shivers up my spine. I mean, yeah. we obviously we continue to debate what getting Brexit done uh, means, but are the next set of goals any more defined than this sort of uh, this vague idea of leveling up? This sort of civil service reform, this closing down public health, England, but this isn't exactly thrill mania. Yeah, and the leveling up stuff isn't. I mean, it's obviously it's not based on what they actually believe in or have any interest in it's it's again it's just an electoral strategy mm. right like i mean the, the assumption is look, we see a space here the spaces will shift slightly to the left on economics which i mean they've done you know coronavirus makes that very easy because the only response that anyone's used has been left-wing economically um it is worth occasionally we, we might just take a bit of time to keep on like reminding any sort of laissez-faire economist you know being like oh it's funny how no one's talking about letting the market decide anymore <laughs> you know it, it would seem to like you know Keynes is apparently the only solution for fucking anyone um so you go left on economics and you you drill down hard into the right wing sort of social stuff around nation and and things like that I mean that again it's not you know there's no point thinking this is what he wants to do I mean god knows if 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 underneath all that guff there is any real conviction there at all on any subject. I, I, I honestly don't think there is. It's All of it is an electoral strategy. So the levelling up stuff is real in that it is an electoral strategy for how do you keep the red wall seats. That, that's the assessment. And really what they want to do is get on with it and get past coronavirus to, to try and deliver on enough of it that they can shore themselves up in 2025. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that it's because he believes in any of it, because that is completely irrelevant to the way this administration functions. Yeah, well, it's traditional, isn't it? Every now and then the Tory party claims to care about poor people. Um, and then, and, <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's another August tradition. Doesn't, yeah. doesn't do anything. Um, Naomi, there's a pinch of salt story in the Times diary with Dominic Cummings' father-in-law uh, has been telling people that Johnson will step down in six months due to health issues. Imagine he did. Um, <laughs> imagine he did. Who has a sort of enough ambition, hubris, maybe even talent, uh, to want to inherit uh, the throne of shit at the, you know, the end of a sort of COVID winter, just as hard Brexit, possibly no deal Brexit, is kicking in? Um, who wants it? Oh, God, you are so right to highlight like the shit throne. Um obviously best of Britain's own economic impact assessment of that double whammy of, you know, the Corona recession and a very hard Brexit is, is truly horrifying. And then, you know, throwing in winter, flu season, floods, second wave, medical shortages, food shortages, school closures, and you'd be for- forgiven for assuming that they'd literally hand the, the keys to number 10 straight to Starmer themselves. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really interesting one, like when you say who wants it, but then, you know, you also, I think, threw in the word talent uh, and, and, and capacity, um, then it becomes a much harder question to answer. Uh, I think the only current cabinet minister that, and I say this bloody begrudgingly that that ticks all of those is probably Gove. But I think Hunt probably still fancies the top job and probably couldn't be worse than any of the current cabinet lot because they are woeful. I mean, there is very, very little brilliance in, in the current cabinet. 
So who actually does have the... Who, who, who can you understand why they're in government? Um, here's someone where you just go, this person has like some kind of mission. So I would say, you know, the Cummings, I get. Yeah, why. definitely Cummings. Uh, Pretty Patel, I sort of get her evil plan. Um, I sort of understand why she's there. Um, I mean, who, who else sort of do you actually go, well, I may not agree with everything. You mentioned Gove there, where you would go, I may not agree with what they believe uh, and I may want to stop them, but I at least respect that they have a kind of a goal uh, that you traditionally associate with people in government. I mean, I, I think that's the problem. This this current Conservative Party isn't like one we've seen before. Ian's just touched on it with the whole sort of, you know, uh, less laissez-faire on economics and much, you know, more socially conservative on those issues than we've seen for uh, sort of several uh, rounds of conservative administration. And they, they're holding together this very odd coalition. You know, on the one hand, they've got English nativists to shore up, uh, and on the other part of the coalition under the conservatives are the British imperialists. Um, and so you, you see things like the refugee uh, crisis reaction uh, as being, you know, red meat for, for the nativists. And then on the other hand, you've got the appointment of people like Tony Abbott, uh, an Australian being brought in to work with Liz Truss on the uh, trade advisory group as being a thing that's meant to shore up those uh, much more, you know, British imperialists that want to hark back to those days of empire. Um, Minnie, finally, um, uh, I hate to put it on the spot to say something nice about a conservative, but but are, is there anybody uh, on, the, on the front bench, maybe not on the very front line, but maybe kind of a little more below the radar? That you do, the, where you think, you know, that that thing of I don't, I don't agree with you, but you're there's something going on. Is there any anybody that sort of earned your respect in the current crop? Uh, I mean, I'd, I I would have to say probably not really. I mean, that it might be unfair, but uh, you know, there are some Conservative MPs who we work with on certain issues who do take a very principled approach to certain bits of migration. So, for example. David Davis has a really, you know, strong and principled approach to ending detention. And I can, I can sort of agree with his rationale behind that. And he's done a lot of work. But in general, no one really strikes me as, as someone who uh, could get us through this, this crisis and through this pandemic and, yeah. and would have the charisma um, and a fair approach to, to policy. Well, that is the first time in uh, three and a half years that someone on this podcast has said something nice about David Davis. So that's <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I don't that want that record actually, but he has done something good. <laughs> no, it's all. Always... Some, some of them are okay on like Hong Kong BNOs, but then definitely not mm. on you know people that come from the Middle East and Africa. So they're, well, they're, they're really you know they are few though. and far between. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that. Amid distressing signs of refugees in the Channel, Priti Patel is making the inevitable tough noises about strong borders. But with Britain's final exit from EU mechanisms fast approaching, is dealing with this issue going to get a lot more difficult? Millie, when the UK was in the EU, uh, it was subject to something known as the Dublin Regulation. Can you explain what that is? Yes, I will try to do this in a way that, that's simple and easy for people to understand because I'm sure you can imagine EU processes are, are quite complicated. Sure. But essentially, the Dublin Agreement is an EU-wide agreement which determines which country has responsibility for looking at someone's asylum application. So it's based on this, this principle of, of shared cooperation. And there's supposed to be a number of criteria that assess which country is responsible for that person. And that includes things like family ties or relationships. But more often than not, the, the criteria that you hear about most often is the entry criteria or the first country that the person entered into the EU. So often uh, you the country that is determined to be responsible is the country that the person has entered into. And I think this is where I, it gets confusing and I, and I just want to be really clear about something because it comes up quite often that, you know, just because the EU has the system in place doesn't mean that you have to apply for asylum in the first safe, safe country. There isn't a legal requirement to apply for asylum in the first safe country you enter. And actually, the way that the EU and the UK go about using that bit of the Dublin system could actually be and is actually quite contrary to, to refugee protection laws. So, you know, it's quite a, a complicated system that is used differently by different EU countries, depending on their sort of political inclinations. 
So it's flawed in itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there there's definitely room for reform in that system. But but let's just have an example. So, you know, in principle, what should happen is, let's say you you enter into Greece, but you've got close family in Germany, you know, that Dublin system should allow you to get to Germany for Germany to uh, process your asylum application, and for you to get on with your life there. But in reality, what happens is that the EU member states use the returns criteria more often than the family one. So you have this system where asylum seekers are making their way to their family members or to to a country that they feel they would be able to build a life in. And those member states stop that system. They stop their applications and return them to to another part of the EU that that they say they've entered into. And that's obviously mostly places like Italy and Greece, which are already taking the largest number of people. So you've got this system of cooperation which isn't actually being used in that way. And actually, the UK government has taken the most advantage of that situation, because clearly, most displaced people are not entering the UK as the first country. And so what we often do is is people get here, and then we just immediately use the Dublin system to return them to somewhere else in the EU. So because I mean, a lot of people who are sort of, uh, you know, hostile to refugees, the, the they're thinking it's all about sort of safety and that once you're out of your the country that you're fleeing um it really doesn't matter whether you're in britain or or greece or italy you know because because you're sort of because you're safe now in the tree in you know when in when you're talking about the sort of ethical treatment of refugees obviously safety from uh, persecution or war is like a major factor but what are the other um what are the other factors that are that are taken into account and are seen as, as really valuable and why uh, that it's not just sort of acceptable to leave people in the first place they they land? Yeah, so I think you often hear this thing from people about, well, you know, France is a safe country and, and X, X country is safe and they should just stay there. And but. I think what they're doing is really simplifying what is actually happening to people on the ground. So, I mean, most people do apply for asylum in different EU countries. Uh, like, you know, France takes three times the amount of asylum applications that we did. They did that last year and we, we're taking very few. So it's just a small proportion of people who are sort of trying to get into the UK. The majority of those people have, have family and friends here, have a com- existing community here. Maybe they speak English. More often than not, they come from countries with historic colonial relationships with the UK. So they, you know, they have a connection to this, to this country and, and have a reason to want to come here. And as in the case that happened last week when the young man died, he had actually had his asylum claim rejected by France. You know, he, was, he wasn't he was trying to get into the UK as his first country. He had been rejected by a flawed asylum system in France and was, was left with no options. So again, it's, it's, you know, we have to take into account who these people are and why they're traveling. And we, we don't often do that because we just narrow them down to, to numbers, essentially. And how does Britain compare to other countries in the EU. You mentioned the France's, uh, you know, flawed system and rejecting claims. Um, is Britain uh, one, of the, one of the worst, one of the sort of the harshest, the least cooperative, um, or is it a fairly widespread problem? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, the UK has very specific and fundamental problems with the asylum system. We have some of the most draconian treatment of asylum seekers. So, you know, first of all, we don't have a safe and legal way for them to get into the UK. That is fundamentally different from the rest of the EU in some ways. Although, you know, the same week that someone died uh, crossing into the channel, you had 45 people um, dying in the Mediterranean um, trying to get into the EU in the first place. So those problems are sort of replicated. But the UK's is particularly harsh. Um, There are possibly two routes, maybe three routes to get into the UK safely. And that means that people are often pushed into the hands of people, smugglers and traffickers. And then once they are here, the system is so 
it's so harsh to people. I mean, I can't really describe the experiences of someone who goes to the asylum system, but, you know, the burden of proof to, to show that you're an asylum seeker is really, really high. And you often have really detrimental impacts on, for example, LGBT people who are asked to prove that they're, that they're gay or to, pr- to prove what kind of relationships they've had. Um, we often refuse certain countries immediately. There's just a high, really high threshold for, for which countries um, we decide are, are not safe anymore for people. Then we have this whole system of, of deportation in which we decide that people are not asylum seekers. They don't have proper access to justice because, you know, legal aid is incredibly hard to come by for asylum seekers. And then we just deport them to countries where they're potentially not safe um, and we don't track them when they're there afterwards. So, yeah, there are really fundamental problems here and as well as all the things like, you know, asylum seekers only get 30 37 pounds a week to live off asylum accommodation has has been shown to be absolutely appalling um, really inhumane conditions and the fact that they're not allowed to work while they're while their claims are being processed so yeah the UK has a, has a particularly bad system in place and there are there are you know other countries which have equally bad systems but I would say that ours is is notorious for being one of the worst. Naomi the Brexit party are currently on a and splendid 2% in the polls. Why does Priti Patel seem to be taking Farage's lead on this? Or are the Conservatives, in fact, just sort of exploiting him and, and using him as a as an outrider? I mean, I think this is pretty similar to what, you know, I was saying in the last segment about this odd coalition that the Conservatives feel they now have to hold together. I think, you know, Farage is never far from, you know, re-emerging and, and reigniting a political party. So I think, you know, this is very much about them wanting to shore up all of those, uh, you know, English nativists um, uh, and, and making sure that they stick with the Conservatives. And I think this is, you know, part of the the problem that Labour has and that we often talk about on this show is that some of those red wall voters that have switched away from Labour towards the Conservatives, the, the danger for the Conservatives isn't that they may go back to Labour, it's that they may go even further to the right uh, if they are disappointed by this government. And um, and and so this is, you know, obviously that, that red meat for those more nativist and incredibly socially conservative um, voters. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think just while I'm on that point, uh, we've not really touched on it yet, but I'm I'm pretty disappointed by the underwhelming response from Labour on this, Um, certainly from the shadow cabinet. I mean, Preet Gill has actually been sort of fairly sound on on her interventions. And then on the left of the party, you've had people like uh, Clive Lewis and Nadia Whittam, um, m- making good interventions, but the Shadow Home Secretary Nick Thomas Simmons stopped short of walloping the government over this, and he had a pretty, you know, mild—I'd say, relatively mild—statement about the government lacking compassion and competence on this issue. And you know, I, I think I think that's pretty sad to see. Uh, but you have got groups inside Labour that are doing more on it. You've got Open Labour and the Labour Campaign for Free Movement and Momentum themselves have all put quite a bit of pressure internally on the leadership to take a, an angrier stance on all of this. But as yet, we, we haven't seen that. You've got to wonder about the 2% of people who are still supporting the Brexit party, sitting at, <laughs> sitting at home furiously downloading Land of Hope and Glory, <laughs> stuffing, <laughs> fish holding out. stuffing fish and chips into their mouth before they <laughs> get taken away. They're just holding out for like another seat in the House of Lords, basically. <laughs> you've got a better than average chance. It's all the people that didn't get peerages. Ian, last year, the the EU declared that the refugee crisis that began in 2015 was at an end. So what is what we're seeing at the moment, is that deemed by the EU a new crisis? Are we in a new phase? Uh... No, I mean, there's no, there never was a crisis and uh, not in terms of what's happening for the EU. And there isn't one now. Like, I mean, at the height of, you know, in 2015, they were getting about 300,000 people. That sounds like a lot, right? But you're, you're talking about a, an entire continent. If that burden was shared on the continent, then there was no reason that that level of of, of intake could not be handled. Because remember, of course, not all of them will be granted um, refugee status. What it required was was a bit of help with the burden. But instead, we saw, and I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, you know, the, the continent, while there were some sort of honorable examples like Merkel, um, 
letting in a lot of people, we fundamentally saw the con- the continent accept the narrative from Victor Orban of, you know, this is a problem that needs to be sorted and, and adopt what was essentially a security response, essentially trying to push the offshore the problem, predominantly to sort of Libya and to, to Turkey. Now, what the continuation that we see is the fact that there are lots of countries experiencing war, experiencing societal breakdown, experiencing economic collapse. You know, like you look at the Migration Observatory and looking at where the asylum seekers to the UK are from, it's from countries like Iran and Iraq, Eritrea, Pakistan, Albania. You know, these are countries where things are not great. And the response to that is like one of those really tedious sort of pragmatic, practical, long-term liberal responses. Of, I mean, first of all, you have to make sure there is safe passage for those who need to flee sort of terror and violence. But then you need to say, what is it that we can do in these countries? How can we help these countries so that these kind of flows do not take place in the first place? But these are not, it's not like there are these sudden sparks of crises that are happening. We have an unstable world. Like we are affected by other countries. And when things fall apart in other countries, this is the result of what takes place. Many, finally, just on, on the sort of technical uh, aside, what will British withdrawal from the EU mean uh, for the treatment of asylum seekers? And would there be any major difference if the UK left with a deal or with no deal? Yeah, so I mean, at this point in time, we just don't know what agreements will be in place. Um, Last week, the EU rejected the UK's proposal to to stay in Dublin. I mean, I think, you know, the the EU found that very disingenuous that we want to leave the EU, but but keep the bits that, that benefit us in the sense that the bit that the government likes, the bit that allows them to not take refugees and to return them to, to other parts of the EU. Um, I mean, realistically, whether we or not we leave with a deal makes no difference because the UK still has international obligations to, to take asylum seekers and to take uh, you know, to assess their claims. It's just about how we will cooperate with the EU. And that could be an opportunity to be a lot better, but it doesn't look likely under this government. Um, but I think the one thing that I will say is last week, the government indicated that they want to put in place a new, uh, they're calling it a fair borders bill, which I think will be the furthest away from fair that it could possibly be. Mm. But that's the place where they will try to realign the asylum system and make it more difficult for people to apply in the UK. They will probably frame that around what happens with Brexit, whether or not we we have a deal. And I think they'll use it as an excuse to, to change the asylum system essentially for the worst, rather than, than taking the opportunity to reform it in the very practical and logical ways that, that they could do. Um, so I think, you know, it's all up in the air at the moment and we're just waiting for more detail from the government and uh, from the negotiations. Well, I'm sure the government will do the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, it's Andrew Harrison, the producer here. If you like Romaniacs, you will love The Bunker. Every Wednesday, the Romaniacs regulars plus new guests get together for a no-holds-barred political roundtable about anything and everything except Brexit. What we are definitely living through is a golden age of incompetence. We don't talk about the parts of the data pipeline that are the cause of misleading arguments. On Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, there's the Bunker Daily with one-to-ones and explainers on everything from the economy to the arts, culture and even food. Italians are extravagant about food but never wasteful. That's what I'm like. I'm a genius. That's what the J stands for, Donald J. Trump. That's the Bunker with all your favourites from Romaniacs and more. Get it? We're you get your podcasts. Now it's time to find out where your energy should be going in a segment we call To the Barricades. Each week, one of the panel chooses a cause or campaign that you might want to support. Minnie Roman, uh, as our guest, where should people be directing their uh, efforts? Well, I would say that you can direct your efforts to the organisation that I work for, which is the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. Um, You can join as a member, you can sign up to our mailing list and follow us on social media. Um, If you're looking for something to do, we also have 
uh, a right to your MP action up at the moment on safe and legal routes to the UK for people. And then more generally, there are tons of grassroots organisations on the ground in Calais and in Kent who would be absolutely desperate for donations and support. So you can support Kent Refugee Action Network and Care for Calais on the ground in Calais. Brilliant. Thanks, Minnie. Finally, it's time for the Brexit News Roundup. Ian, as Naomi mentioned uh, earlier, former Australian PM Tony Abbott has been tipped to join the UK Board of Trade as an advisor. What qualifies the big drongo for the job? Yeah, well, good question. Um, so, you know, if you don't know this guy, I mean, the quick, no, let's see. No, what qualifies him? Okay, so he is, you know, misogynistic. He's homophobic. He thinks climate change is made up. He jokes about people that have committed suicide. He's fundamentally incapable of grasping even, you know, extremely elementary political ideas. When interviewed, I remember seeing him once, he he got caught out saying about the death of an Australian soldier, shit happens. And when interviewed, I would encourage anyone to to look this up. Just look up Tony Abbott, complete emotional breakdown um, on YouTube. And you should find it. When interviewed about it, he just suddenly fell into silence, wouldn't respond to questioning and started nodding his head like some kind of broken toy. Um, And he does, this is again worth looking up, when offered onions, seem to instinctively try to eat them, including the skin, as if they were an apple. So even on very basic elements of what life involves, he seems completely unable to understand what it is to be a normal human. Fred West did that famously. Well, that is a very telling comparison. So given that those are all of his qualities... I think you can see already what would make him so suitable for a job with this government on Brexit. Because, of course, what he has on the other side is he believes in Brexit. And there we go. So now he has that job. And I think we can expect from him the level of quality um, and sophistication that he demonstrated when he was in Australian politics. Uh, Naomi, he opposed Brexit uh, until it happened, uh, at which point he suddenly became a big fan. Um, so you certainly got the moral fibre uh, that we expect from a Johnson appointee. Is there anything um, you'd like to add to this uh, rogues gallery of traits that Ian's offered. Uh, I mean, yeah, Ian's totally right. This is such a Trumpian move to hire him because he is a sexist uh, who said Australians should vote for him because his daughters are good looking. He's a massive homophobe who campaigned against same-sex marriage. Um, And, you know, what is all of this really about? Um, It reminds me of a cult um, you know, what do you do when you realize that everything your critics predicted comes to pass, which is looking increasingly likely in the situation we've now got, you know, with this incredibly hard Brexit and potentially no deal Brexit? Oh, well, you know, if you're a cult leader, you just double down and tell people to believe harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, it's the exact same tactics as a cult. Ideology is now conflicting with real life and it's just making the, the cultists look more desperate. And I think it's a big sign of weakness, actually, that they've given him this role. You know, look, 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 we are global. I mean, we haven't actually got any trade deals, but look, we're global enough that an Australian wants to work with us. <laughs> Um, it's just, it's fucking pathetic. Mum, mum, I've got an Australian. We are globally humiliated. Nobody's exactly. impressed by an Australian. Wait, I, I have that. Kylie Minogue. Kylie Minogue. I, I don't mean in, just in principle. Being Australian is not enough. <laughs> I'm impressed by many <laughs> exceptional Australians, including Sir Nick Cave, uh, <laughs> but not because he's Australian. Just want to clear that up. Uh, this does, I mean, doesn't this just take us back to our first conversation? If you sit there looking at the government and just going, how can they just be, what the fuck is, like, you know, how can this be happening? And then you look at his track record, you look, I mean, just take your pick, just honestly, Google his fucking name and look at the videos of him being interviewed. So, I mean, forget the morality, just look at, you know, the basic capacity to operate in politics or even in the world as even a vaguely competent human being and think this is the guy they picked. This is the guy they pick for his loyalty. And that's how you end up getting a government like the one we've got right now. Uh, just to end on an even higher note, uh, a cabinet office reasonable worst case scenario for the overlap of a second wave of coronavirus and a no deal Brexit leaked last week in the style of children of men fan fiction. <laughs> there may be power cuts, petrol shortages, public disorder, local authorities going bankrupt, the spread of animal disease throughout the countryside. Uh, and in a fun twist, the RAF airdropping food to the Channel Islands. 
Minnie, this perhaps was was not as, as big a story as it might have been. Do you think any of this is shocking or have we sort of become immune to bad news at this particular stage in the game? I mean, I find it shocking, but um, I, I kind of think that the British public is, is sto- sort of in a constant state of shock and disbelief. And I, I think people just, they hear the news, but they just don't think that it's going to happen. They just maybe can't believe that that actually we're going to be in such a bad situation. I, I would have thought that living through a pandemic would maybe say to people, actually really bad things can happen and they they are going to happen. So maybe <laughs> uh, maybe people will start to recognise that. But but I am shocked that it wasn't a bigger story because I was pretty scared by it. Yeah, the, the answer to what's the worst that can happen. Uh, yeah. uh, we've, 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 got, we've got some options. Um, Naomi, Michael Gove, of course, said we do not think it will happen, which is exactly what you would say about a report like this. Um, but does this show that somewhere in Whitehall, someone is taking these possibilities seriously so that they, they sort of deny in private, but but they're preparing in public? Or is that, is that wishful thinking? I think Whitehall are taking it very seriously, and I think Gove is taking it very seriously. And um, we know from Operation Yellowhammer last year just how much they did prepare for No Deal. Um, and it's in no small part why they were able to act so quickly with some of the corona-related measures like the furlough scheme, uh, because they actually had had to do an enormous amount of preparation ahead of No Deal, you know, an enormous amount of stockpiling of, of certain things, and they now have to replenish all of those stocks. Um, so I think I think there is a, a pretty a pretty seismic amount of work going on in the background. I maintain that they probably would prefer to get a silhouette of a deal, um, which is probably the best we can hope for at this stage and, and hope that it is something that we can then use as a framework to build on over the next five to seven years and, and, and claw our way back into something much more sensible. Um, but I, I, I think I think they are I have no reason to believe that they are not you know, putting an enormous amount of of government resource into uh, ensuring that that there are some mitigations ready uh, in in the event of no deal. But you know, there is only there is a limit to how much they can actually do. We know, and we've talked about it on this show before. You know, there are some medicines who have shelf lives that are measured in hours rather than days that we do not and cannot produce here um and so you know th- those kinds of supplies uh, can't be can't be stockpiled so it, it's very worrying and i think we should all be but we do uh, so we do have the specter of no deal brexit to thank for some of the more uh, successful emergency measures during the pandemic <laughs> thanks thanks yeah. <laughs> thanks one, the specter of no deal brexit <laughs> i'm sorry i was so rude about you <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of this week's Romaniacs. Thank you to special guest Minnie Rahman. Thanks so much for having me. Ian Dunt. Cheers. And Naomi Smith. Thanks, Dorian. Don't forget our next Zoom on Thursday, 24th of September. Now, here's Corner Shop with our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, and some thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Yes, hello, and thanks from me to Philip Charnley, Sarah Eggleston, Kathy Brown, and Alan Goulding. A big thank you from me to Matt Ashton, Corinne Furkett, Sarah Marsden, and Roger A. Kivett. And finally, many thanks to Helen Palmer, Andy McDonald, Matthew, and Jack of All Trades. Take care and see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. The producer is Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold. An audio production is by me, Alex Reese. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. 